Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. I'm a member of this church, but you rarely see me. I live in Chicago, so if you don't know me, uh, that's the reason. It's a long story. How does that work? We're in our series in 1 John. If you still like to have your Bible open in front of you, our ushers will bring you one. Just put your hand up for those of you who prefer to use the app. Go ahead and open up your apps. We're in 1 John 3 today, and we actually have a very long passage today, a weirdly long passage. Uh, We decided as a teaching team that the themes that John is talking about here extend, and so we're going to take a larger section today, and it's going to actually take a bit of time to read and try to get it all in our minds. And then given everything that John says, I don't want to myself say too much. I want to let John say what he said, and we can, we can reflect on it. So I hope not to add too much, but that's what we're doing. All right, everybody have their Bibles with them and their, uh, their apps open. Let me read this, this passage. Uh, today we're looking at 1 John 3, 11 through 24, and then also we're going to go to chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. So there's quite a bit, all right? This is what John says, starting in chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence in God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of, the son, uh, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, let us not love Uh, Sorry, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this love. Not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his perfect love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that Uh, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. All right, there's quite a bit there. It's quite a long passage. As I mentioned, I was was asked to say a few things, and I got to remember to do that before I go on. Uh, I'm a member of this church, and so he's talking here in this passage. I'm reminded of the nature of fellowship and what it ought to be ideally. And that makes me feel, uh, when I see you guys, and I, and I know many of you, and I, and I do have a church where I live in Illinois as well, but I am a member here, which is, you know, a, kind of a strange thing. And, and um, I desire to be in fellowship with you guys and, and see you guys as, as much as possible. And, you know, the Lord's working this, these things out in our uh, ministry team, but... Um, again, I, I, I live in Chicago. I was told to, to say this. Um, I do also participate on our biblical foundations team, which has really been awesome. That biblical foundations group, if you're a member of it, has been growing. So I get to teach there. Carla uh, runs that. And um, uh, Peggy uh, assists with that. Paul is also on the teaching team. I'm not saying last names, but you know who I'm talking about. Uh, and so that's a wonderful time, but I do that via Zoom. If you have any interest in the um, trip to Turkey and Greece that we're doing in May into June this summer, I will be helping to lead that. So that's going to be an incredible time of fellowship. And um, I'll tell you a little bit that has a little bit to do with the sermon because the background that we're able to get being in those places really enhances our faith and can be really useful in our ministries. Turkey is the birthplace of the Christian faith. Now you might think, well, no, it's Jerusalem, it's Israel. Um, In Israel, we're following the footsteps of Jesus, but really the church forms and is birthed out of Antioch, which is Syria and now modern day Turkey. The churches of Acts and Revelation, most of them are in modern day Turkey. And so a second sort of homeland of the Christian faith is Greece. And between those countries, uh, there's so much that's biblically relevant. And some of what John says here um, contains some of that background. So I'll help be, uh, I'll uh, be helping to lead that with an outside lead by the name of Brian O'Neill. He was a colleague of mine at, at Moody Bible Institute where I teach, and he's no longer there, but he's leading these tours. And so it should be a pretty awesome time. If you're interested, uh, I'd love to, to have that time with you. So, okay, so much for announcements. This long passage that we just looked at, John has given us a lot to think about here. And in fact, he said what I consider to be probably the most important thing that human language has ever uttered, God is love. There's way more to that than we can even imagine or contemplate. And what he's doing is he is presenting us a sort of Hebraic and even Greek logic that expresses that. John is largely teaching and preaching out of Ephesus. A lot of people think he died on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. He didn't die there on Patmos. He ended up leaving Patmos and going to Ephesus. He took Mary with him, Jesus's mother, and treated her as his own mother. You remember on the cross, Jesus gave Mary to John because Jesus cared so much for his mother 
that he was replacing the mother that she was losing and making sure that she was taken care of and loved as a son should, should love his, his mother. And so John took on that role. And so he lived there with Mary and taught from there. Ephesus is a very, at the time in the first century, a very Greek, Roman, Persian city with a sizable Jewish population. It's very much a cosmopolitan place. John, of course, being a Jew, living in the Greco-Roman world, is influenced by all of these things, and he's pastoring out of this city. And he is able, as a pastor, as a disciple, inspired by God, to bring together a variety of themes and ideas and expressions that really preached well and made sense in this particular place. Here's something that's really important to understand about the Greco-Roman world. At this time, John is, he's preaching the gospel. He's a witness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He is a Jew from Jerusalem. He is, he's, he's far from there, now in this epicenter of Greco-Roman life and culture, ministering, but he knows where he is and he understands the world that he's ministering in. And he's ministering in a world that is influenced by Greek ideas that are going to start infecting the church. And he can already foresee this happening. And in church history, long after John is dead, we see that precisely what John is already predicting will happen in the book of first John and his, in, in, in his other epistles will actually happen. So one of the things that happens is that Greek thought and Greek, not mythology, but Greek philosophical thinking will begin to seep into the church in such a way that certain people will change the gospel to make it more consistent with, say, the teachings of Plato than the teachings of Jesus, because it was thought to be more culturally astute, more philosophically insightful. The gospel for some Greeks just seemed kind of embarrassing. Here's one of the, the items of embarrassment that some Greeks thought. They thought of truly good and pure and spiritual things as being fundamentally non-physical. Nothing physical could be fundamentally good. So when John says in his gospel in 1 John 14, the word who was with God and was God, this eternal word that holds everything together, that's fairly consistent with Greek thinking, that there is this logos, this logic of reality that holds everything together that you can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear, but it's a sort of fundamental principle, unifying principle of reality. They already had that concept. And John says, that's Jesus. And then the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that is shocking to them. How could something perfect and pure and spiritual take on flesh? Flesh is fundamentally corrupt. And so the incarnation and the bodily resurrection is embarrassing to many Greeks who also want to call themselves Christians. Well, why do they want to call themselves Christians? Because the preaching of the gospel was so powerful. In fact, in Ephesus, Luke records that they said of the apostles, these are the men who turn the world upside down with their preaching. So it was so impactful. It was so powerful. The acts of the Holy Spirit were so evident that many people wanted to flock to this new religious belief. They wanted to gain the power for themselves. They wanted to see what these things were, but they brought, of course, their Greco-Roman ideas. And again, many of the very fundamental ideas of the gospel were just somewhat embarrassing to them. So they reinterpreted Christian theology in platonic ways, according to Plato's teaching. Here's a couple things that Plato said. 
Plato said that God is light. We saw that early on in the Gospel of John. There's nothing new there. The Greeks would fully agree with that. Yes, God is light. In fact, in his famous book, The Republic, you've probably heard of that book, one of the most famous books ever written, Plato's Republic, he says that there is this transcendent reality which he calls the good. The good is the highest of all beings that gives being to the world. Not a creator God, but more like the sun. Just like the sun shines and it nourishes the earth and makes the earth to live and then also makes things visible and therefore knowable, it's the key to both being and knowledge for Plato. The good is that thing which makes all things exist and makes all things knowable. So it's this sort of fundamental reality which he called the good, but not a creator God, not someone who loves us, pure unapproachable light. And then later on, he says, well, okay, how did things on the earth come to be what they are? They appear to be designed like horses and trees have elements of design. Certainly somebody designed them, but he didn't have a doctrine of creation. So he said, well, there's this secondary God, we'll call him the Demiurge. And he just looks at the perfect reality of the good. And then he takes raw matter, which is all corrupted and not very not intrinsically good, and he takes raw matter and he makes it um, after what he sees in the good. And so he, he creates a reality that's pretty good. At the end of Timaeus, another one of Plato's writings, um, Timaeus says that the Demiurge made all things as best as possible with, these, with this corrupt material, this raw matter. So things are pretty good, but they're not perfect, they're not, per they're not pure or anything like that. So John is already foreseeing that people are going to start smuggling these kinds of ideas into the gospel, which are not consistent with biblical revelation. What they're going to do is they're going to think of the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, as the Demiurge, who is not really the high God, but he created all things, dirty things, and so these things are sort of not quite right. Jesus is the revelation of the highest God, the God of light, and so they're going to divide Jesus from the Father and think of them as somewhat separate, even reject the Old Testament as corrupted revelation. And so they're utterly uh, changing all of these things. John is fighting against this. Even in the book of First John, in John 1.1, 1, 1, he says of Jesus that we've seen him with our eyes and touched him with our hands. If we touched him, he's not pure spirit. He took on flesh. They thought of Jesus as something, these, these Gnostics, these Platonic Christians, they thought of Jesus as something like a hologram because he couldn't have really taken on flesh. That's dirty. That's, that's improper. That's not right. John says, no, we touched him with our hands. In verse 4-2, he's going to tell us that Jesus has come in the flesh. In verse 5-6, he's going to tell us that he came by water and blood. He was birthed in the normal way, out of Mary's womb. And of course, as I mentioned before, he tells us in his gospel in John 1-14 that he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He is consistently answering these sort of platonic objections and uh, manipulations of the gospel message. So that's all part of this background. It's very important. And as we read this long passage, we see both its Hebraic character, because of course John was a, was a Jew, and then also this sort of Greco-Roman dualistic character, and he's weaving it together really ingeniously. Kind of sounds a bit like the Psalms. It's got that interwoven poetic character. 
So my task, as I was thinking about this and praying about this this week, you know, what can I do? This is one of the most beautiful things ever written on the nature of love, on par with what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 13. Really, you can't say anything more insightful, wonderful, encouraging, inspiring than what John has said here. So what can I add? And I thought, okay, what I can do is just sort of, let's just map it out so that we can get it in our, in our minds and see what John is doing. So he does this very dualistic and interwoven thing where he compares in this passage hate and love, the nature of hate and love. And so what he does uh, first is that he reminds us of the nature of hate. He gives us a paradigm of hate, a story that we should know. Going back to Genesis 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. He's supposed to love his brother Abel. Supposed to love your brother. He didn't. He did the opposite out of jealousy. And so that would be the paradigm of hate. But we, on the other hand, are, of course, supposed to love one another. So, okay, easy comparison there. In verse uh, uh, 11 in chapter 3, John is just simply relaying to us what he's already recorded in his gospel. So John records some of the sayings straight from Jesus in his own gospel in John uh, 13, 24. Before Jesus' ascension, he told his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another in the same way that I loved you. I can't imagine what the disciples were thinking at that moment because they hadn't yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not going to happen until Acts chapter 1. And they have experienced the love of Jesus, and they're given this enormous task to love each other as he had loved them. I can imagine them thinking, Lord, how are we going to do that? I don't have that power in me. You know how the disciples bicker and they fight amongst each other? We read this in the Gospels. They're not always friendly with each other. One of them betrayed the Lord. Lord, don't trust us to do that. You know who we are. And he said, I've given you this commandment to love each other. That commandment passes on to us. How are we going to do that? Well, that's what John says. Don't be like Cain towards his brother Abel, but love one another just as the Lord has loved us. Another point of comparison that he points out there uh, is that the world hates the brethren. The world hates the brethren. He also records this. John said this. uh, This is a saying of Jesus from John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what Jesus said. Now, when we say this, as we are in the United States of America, it's almost President's Day. Happy President's Day, everybody. We have as much religious tolerance as any nation in the world has ever had. We say God has raised Jesus from the dead every Easter and the world outside of these doors yawns. You can say it. You can believe it. You can have all your myths on Sunday. Don't bring us that garbage on Monday, uh, but we don't care. So if you think that we hate you, get over yourself. We're indifferent to you, right? (laughs) It seems a little self-centered. They hate us. Well, truthfully, they don't care. That's the sort of world that we experience but for the vast majority of Christians over time. And certainly as the early church was beginning to experience it after the murder of Stephen and going forward, there was increasing persecution. So when John is writing this to his audience, they're already beginning to experience arrests and persecutions. And, you know, the United States is, uh, is a place of great religious tolerance and freedom, which 
which is wonderful. Most of the world isn't. There are many, many more believers in Jesus Christ than there are in this country living in the Islamic and communist world, and they know that the world hates them. So you, uh, we can't make any apologies for that. You can't sugarcoat that. It simply is a fact. And so John and recounting Jesus' words, there is a peculiar hatred for the things that Jesus had to say, and it's just so odd. It's just so odd. Why is the teaching of Jesus so universally despised? Well, uh, Jesus points this out. We, on the other hand, love the brethren. John doesn't say we should love the brethren. He says that we do. Another point of comparison, those who hate murder the brethren. Now, hatred, deep hatred, is simply murder that we haven't yet acted out. <laughs> and that might feel very uncomfortable because there's been people in, in your life you can probably think, oh, I hated that guy. I really hated that guy. I've got somebody that I can think of. And it's simply murder that is not yet acted out. Jesus said this in, uh, in um, his, his sermon Matthew, that Matthew rec records in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Whoever hates his brother will be liable to judgment. He said, uh, sorry, before that he said, you have heard it said that anyone who murders is liable to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who hates his brother is liable to judgment. Hatred is equivalent to murder. That person is dead in our hearts. We, on the other hand, by comparison, love the brethren. Paul says a similar thing in, in uh, Romans 5.8. Where does this, this love come from? Uh, God shows us this love, his love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so John tells us in the same way we ought to give our lives for the brothers. That doesn't have to necessarily be a dramatic, like, you know, jump in front of a bullet kind of dramatic, I give my life for you because I love you, but really a continual sort of sacrifice for the brothers. And that's why he also says that we provide for the brethren. We give to those who are in need. And maybe we condemn ourselves a little bit. We think oh, we could do so much more. My life is fairly comfortable and there's more that I could do. If you care about these things, you are filled with the love of God. That's where that care and concern comes from. And so John goes on and he says that those who hate lack eternal life, but those who love have eternal life. And those who hate do not know God and those who love know God. So this is John's logic. I want to tell you what John's logic is as we try to untangle this. What he's saying is, is that genuine love in your life is evidence of eternal life. And there's, there's a very powerful reason for that. Here, here's how he reasons. He says that when we love, we act in deed and truth. We don't just do it vainly. When, we, when you truly love, you're doing something for someone else in deed and truth. And then I have here, oh, sorry. Uh, I've moved on to our, our next part. Uh, love is evidence Oh, I went way too fast. I'm sorry, Earl. Okay. <laughs> My pacing isn't great. Yeah, next one. Um, love is evidence on the, on the next slide of eternal life. And here's his reasoning. Here's, here's John's reasoning. When we love, we act indeed in truth. And what I have here and what's in your notes, we act indeed in truth because we know God in verse 7. So it's a little syllogism that he's providing us, a little philosophical argument that he's providing us. Now, if, if you know your logic, this is actually logically invalid. It's my mistake. So all you logicians out there are judging me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
The second premise is a biconditional. So the logic is valid either way, snobby logicians. Here's how it should be. Here's how it should be. Here's how the argument makes sense. This is what, this is what John is arguing. When we love, we act in deed and truth. And when we act in deed and truth, we know God. So that second premise, you could, you could flip it around. It goes both ways. When we act in deed and truth, we know God. Therefore, when we love, we know God. Now you might think, well, okay, can't pagans love? Can't people who don't know God love? Apparently, John is saying no. That's shocking. There's no such thing. Wait, how's that possible? I know some people who don't know Jesus. They don't claim to be believers, but they're quite loving. So how's that? John is saying no. When we know God, we love, and when we know God, or sorry, when we know God, we love, and when we love, we know God. And it's impossible to truly love apart from the true God. Okay, put a pin in that. Why is that? But that's what John is arguing here. Now he says, now wait a second. When we have God's love in us, we truly know God, but sometimes don't we condemn ourselves? Have you ever wondered this? Especially baby Christians very much struggle with this. Growing up in maturity in Christ is largely a process of working through some of this, this doubt. I remember as a baby Christian having these thoughts. I experienced the love of God and it was something that was happening to me and in my life that I couldn't deny. I couldn't pretend as if I had manufactured this for myself. And it was thrilling to have it, but I had so many condemning thoughts. I actually thought these kinds of thoughts, God, you don't know how sinful I am. Before I'd become a believer, I had had regrets and embarrassment about many of the things that I did, but I had never really repented. I didn't really know how to do that. And when I came to know Jesus in this very powerful way, I came to have more than just shame and regret, but deep grief. We're told in the Bible that the Holy Spirit grieves over our sins. And that's just such a strange thought because we think of God as being infinite joy and happiness and benevolence. The Holy Spirit grieving. Well, the Holy Spirit rightly responds to our sins. I can't exactly say what it is for the Holy Spirit to grieve over our sins, but I was experiencing for the first time in my life real grief. All I was doing, the Holy Spirit was graciously allowing me to participate in his grieving over my sins, which had always been happening, but I had never really known that. So I felt pretty destitute. And I said, God, you don't know what a sinner I am. You don't know how unfaithful I am. You don't know how much I fail. Lord, you don't know how stupid I am. Why are you loving me in this way? It's not going to work out. This relationship is going to end in failure. I am going to fail. I remember having that kind of panic. Maybe some of you have had that. This is our hearts condemning us. And what is John's response? Sometimes our hearts condemn us. Here's John's response. He's greater than our hearts and knows everything. In verse uh, 20, it's so amazing. He's greater than our hearts and knows everything. And so as I grew in Christian maturity, I realized this fact. I'm a sinner. And God says, I know everything. <laughs> You're worse than you think you are. <laughs> I know how bad it is. Lord, I'm stupid. You're dumber than you can even comprehend. I know everything. I'm unfaithful. You have no idea. 
I know all of these things. I am greater than your heart. Our relationship is not going to fail. I already know all of these things. You think that I'm coming into a relationship and having these loving overtures towards you and saying, let's enter into this relationship. I love you and I will teach you to love me. And I say, well, I'm going to fail. It's not going to work out. Do you think that I'm eventually going to become frustrated with you and say, well, I didn't know it was going to be like this. You know what? You're right. Let's call it off. Like every bad relationship ends. Because when it first started, it was so great. But then over time, I, I realized, look, we, this has gone as far as it's going to go. Gosh, it's not going to work out. He knows everything. Do you think God is so bumbling that he comes into loving relationship with us eventually to allow himself to be disappointed? And how arrogant is it for us to think that my sin, my stupidity, my faithlessness is somehow stronger than his love? Who the heck do I think I am? And that's John's point. God gives his love despite who we are, not because of who we are, not because of how we perform. And so because love is evidence of eternal life, love is the fullness of God's presence. And that's where John says this very powerful statement. Love is the fullness of God's presence. On the next slide, we should see, oh, I'm, so, I, I'm going too quickly. My pacing is terrible. And so let's go to uh, love is the fullness of God's presence. We talked about that one. And there we go. God is love. This very powerful statement. This shocking statement. You know, the Greeks had said God is light, but nobody ever said God is love. God is love? No, love is something that we do, something that we experience. Plato's good doesn't love us. Plato's good just shines into reality and makes it to exist and flourish and all of that. But the demiurge, the craftsman who makes things in Plato's philosophy according to the images, that, according to the forms that he sees, the eternal perfect forms, he doesn't love us. God is love. Now, don't uh, misunderstand John's point here. When he says that God is love, some people take that out of context, out of the context of 1 John, and out of the context of what he's about to say, and say, well, God just is love. So whenever we're being loving, according to what standards? Well, according to my own lights. So whatever I think is loving, it might not be loving. It might be coddling. It might be a sort of destructive kind of toleration. Um, It might be a sort of vanity, and I call it love. We do that stuff all the time. And I'm being loving, and that's God. And that's all God is. God is nothing more than just as we're acting nice to each other. Okay? Don't ever trust nice people. Nice people are in it for themselves. Niceness is a thin, insipid form of kindness. Kindness is true love. Because sometimes kindness tells us things we don't want to hear. Niceness never tells us things we don't want to hear, right? And so God is truly kind. God isn't nice. He's truly kind. And so don't be misled to think that God just is the niceness in the world. Hey, the person was really nice to me. Thank you, God. Thank you, universe. Right? No. Um, When John says God is love, this is what John is saying. God is not just very, very, very loving. Think of the most loving person you know. I could think of my grandmother. She was so kind and loving, so deferential. She did so many things for me, and I was a brat. And I remember being a brat and just thinking, why is she so kind to me? I remember one time my grandmother got upset with me because I was being really bad. And I went, whoa, I went too far. I knew I went way too far because if she got upset, that, <laughs> what I did was too much. 
God is not just really, really, really loving. It's more than that. God is pure love and, in fact, is the source of love. That's very important. Theologians have called this the doctrine of divine simplicity. You and I can't exist unless there are pre-existing parts to make us to exist, right? So, of course, we know that our fathers and mothers contribute parts, and then the embryo exists, and that's you in your first stage as an embryo, and then we grow up into be adults. But we can't be human beings unless human parts pre-exist, or by you know, another similar analogy, you can't have a car unless car parts first exist, right? Somebody has to first manufacture car parts, and then you put the parts together, and now you have a car. What parts do we put together to, to assemble God? God isn't made of parts. Nothing pre-exists God. So whereas human parts pre-exist humans, car parts pre-exist God, nothing pre-exists God. So it's not that God is very loving. It's like you just take a bunch of love, and you take a bunch of wisdom, and you take some holiness, and you take some power, and you put it all together, and you can have God. No, God doesn't have a bunch of love. God is love. God doesn't have a bunch of power. God is power. God doesn't have a bunch of holiness. God is perfect, pure holiness. And so that stuff exists because God exists. So this is just good theology. This is just good thinking on John's part. God isn't just very loving. God is perfect love. And so then John goes on to say that when we keep his commandments in love, then these benefits follow. And so he speaks of God in a triune way because God is Trinity. First, we abide in the Father and the Father abides in us. So abiding in the Father, that's true salvation. That's what we lost in the garden. Adam and Eve were sent out of the presence of God. When we obey Jesus' commandments and know him, we have true fellowship restored with the Father. And then we believe in the Son, live through him, and testify of him. So you've got the Father, the Son, and then John tells us that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When God's love is operative, theologians say, we see the inseparable operations, inseparable operations. We don't have three gods. We know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's only one God. In some mysterious way, the Father, Son, and Spirit are that one God. So contrary to these Gnostics who thought, well, the Father doesn't love us, that's the demiurge, but Jesus, who's pure spirit, like a hologram, he loves us, and so that's why he comes and does different things and the Father's mean, that's all nonsense. There is one love of God that Jesus expresses from the Father to us. And so when the love of God moves, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit move simultaneously. Because again, there's only one divine love. There aren't three divine loves to be given. Or when God's power moves in creation. The creation of the world is attributed to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But they don't cooperate like three people building a project together. There is one divine act. And so it's really heartening that when John is teaching these things about God's love, he's teaching it in a way which is fully accurate to the revelation that we have in the Gospels. It's fully accurate to the persons of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It isn't this, this sort of vague, generic God or universe loves us. It's very specific and done in a specific way. And so we abide in the Father, we believe in the Son, we're indwelt by the Spirit, and because of those things, we love one another and then we love with the love that um, he provides. And so we shouldn't misunderstand this. We're told that when we obey his commandments, we experience his love and we think, okay, if I'm obedient to God, then God will love me. That's Islam. 
you have to work for God's approval. And God owes it to you. It's as if you were a, a, a worker and your employer owes you your wages. Father, I served you. I did your commandments. I obeyed you. And so you should give me your love. That's how this is supposed to work. And if he doesn't give us his love, then we have a case against him. That's backwards. That is not the gospel. It's the other way around. God first loves us and then we obey. How is it even possible that we obey? We obey because we're filled with God's love. That's the power in us that causes our obedience. Our obedience does not cause his love. First he loves us and then we obey. First he loves us and then we love others with the love with which he provides us. There is no love in us with which to love others. So you don't have to conjure up some power in yourself that you don't have. You just have to receive his love and then that is directed to others. And so we love others with the love that he provides us. Let me just give you a personal example. I wasn't planning to do this, but it's kind of intense. But I think the Lord prompted me this morning to, to just give a personal example. Uh, it, it is a personal example. It's not going to be too detailed because you don't want the details. But let me, let me just tell you, 2016, my wife and I nearly divorced. And we had all of the elements that the vast majority of people would say, you should divorce. <laughs> it's really bad. These are all the things that you would want to divorce for, for sure. And we got to the point, I remember having a conversation, we were in the kitchen and you know how these conversations can be very intense. And we actually weren't sure that we loved each other. I remember her saying to me, I know I loved you at one time. And she looked at me and she said, didn't I? She couldn't remember. I remember seeing it in her, in her face and I remember her loving me. And I said, yes, yes, you did. How do you not know anymore? And she said, I haven't felt you love me for years. And I said, what? If you think about the people that you love, that God has put in your life, you probably think of your spouse, your children, your parents, your closest, dearest friends that you've known for a very, very long time. And when you have a breakdown in those relationships and you find yourself empty of love, you're just absolutely distraught and destitute. I remember after that point, thinking and praying, I was angry. I was really distraught. And I remember coming to the end of my rope and thinking about, what would happen if my family were to break up and the effect it would have on my children. And uh, I've been touched by that. My parents divorced and many people in this room have been touched by it. Uh, everybody's been touched by it in one way or another. And I knew what it was like as a child to see my parents go through divorce and how I experienced it. I didn't want that for my children. And being at the end of my rope and praying and saying, I told God, I said, you command me to love my wife. Lord, I can't do it. It's not possible to do. And you know what? I shouldn't have to do it. I shouldn't have to do this. Lord, you know my grievance. And she's praying the same thing. <laughs> I shouldn't have to love him. You know my grievance with him. It's not fair. And knowing for certain that I didn't have the power to do it. I remember I went for a run late at night just to clear my head. I'm not really a runner, so it's not something that I do all the time, but I really had to clear my head, and I was just so angry. I remember just kicking a trash can. <laughs> so mad. 
and just sat down on a curb and, and, and I realized, I can't, I can't do this. I, I can't love her, Lord. And I said this, I said, Lord, I know that you love her. I know that you do. And I'm her husband. If you have love for her that you intend to express through me, then do it. I am no one to stand in the way. But we're both clear, it's not in me. And so I began to just pray and ask God how he was showing love, his love for my wife, not my love, because I didn't even desire to love her. His love for her. And it began changing certain things. And I wasn't doing loving things for her, but just simply seeking God prayerfully, even writing down things. I was kind of doing scientifically, kind of testing things that, uh, that it seemed to me that God was doing. And within a few weeks and a few months, I remember her telling me, I have never felt so loved in my life. I felt nothing. I didn't feel anything. And I went, Really? this is actually working? And she said, yeah. She said, I didn't know that you could love me this, this way. And I said, it's not me. I don't feel anything. That was very discouraging to her. <laughs> it's God's love. I was merely a conduit. But it was really happening in her. And a few months more went along, and that love began to be redirected towards me. And it was God's love flowing through me to her, which is God's order for marriage. And then it was redirected to me. And it took a few months. And then finally, it was like this cycle was working. And I was feeling it. And I am sure my wife and I, we love each other. We're thankful for our marriage. It's unbelievable. But our love for each other doesn't come natively from us. He gives love. And, and with that love, we, we love one another. So let me end with this. God's love is truly unconditional. We talk about human loves being unconditional. You can't imagine not loving your children, I'm sure. I'm sure you can't imagine that. What would have to happen? No matter how, how they hurt us, you can't not love your children. We think of that as unconditional love, but unfortunately, unsettlingly, all human loves seem to have conditional boundaries. It seems like that's the case. God's love is not tolerant. It's not promiscuous but it is surely unconditional. It's really not conditional on who, on who we are. So if your heart condemns you, remember that God is stronger than our hearts. And then secondly, God's love is jealous. I don't have this in the notes, but I think this would be important to write down and meditate on and think about as we read 1 John. John's love is unconditional and God's love is jealous. We're often told that God's love is jealous. And I remember first reading that as a baby Christian and just thinking, wait, jealousy is, is a vice. You don't want to be jealous. Jealousy is bad. No, God's love is not promiscuous. It's not indiscriminately spread over the world. It is specific, specifically for you, specifically for you. And it requires that we respect his holy standards. Think of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, this very rich man, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus looked at him, and it says that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved the rich young ruler, and then he tells him something hard to hear, not something nice. Tells him something difficult. Give away all your wealth. Pick up your cross and come follow me. In other words, value me as your greatest treasure to the degree that you're willing to give away all of your wealth and the rich young ruler couldn't do it. God's love requires that we respect his holy standards. If he says give it all away, then we ought to give it all away. But it's specifically for us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, which I have tattooed on my arm, 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is writing to the church of Galatia and he could have spoken in a corporate way. It's perfectly right to say, and we should say, the son of God loves us and gave himself for us. But he says it in this specific way. The son of God loved me and gave himself for me because that is the controlling reality in his life. On the road to Damascus, he was on the way to murder Jesus's disciples. And the son of God revealed that he loved Paul and gave himself for Paul. And he still can't believe it decades later. John, you know, in the gospel of John, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He never refers to himself as John. Multiple times, John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Can you imagine being in a, in a Bible study with John? And, and uh, everybody's going around and introducing themselves, and John says, hi, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. You're like, okay, okay, that's cute, but really, what's your name? And again, he just says, I'm the one that Jesus loved. And Peter's like, John, Jesus loved all of us. And John says, I know, I know, Peter, but I'm the one he loved. <laughs> That's not arrogance. John can't get over it. He had never experienced love like that. Truly unconditional divine love. It was the controlling, ruling reality in his life. So let me call the worship team forward. If you have a mysterious affection for Jesus that you can't get rid of, and a conviction that he is your salvation, even though our hearts condemn us and we grieve over our sin and we just think, what a failure I am. Why, Lord? I've known students um, that I've talked to and come to me for counseling at Moody and they say, you know what? I just, I love Jesus, but I'm gonna fall, I'm gonna walk away from ministry because look, I'm just such a failure. I, I, I cannot, God can't use me. And their hearts are condemning them. It doesn't depend on you, brother. This isn't about you. (laughs) When your heart condemns you, know that he is greater than our hearts. If you have a desire for fellowship, that's because the Holy Spirit's giving you that desire. It's not because you're a nice person. It's not because you're a people person and you like other people. That's not true. It's God's love operative in us. If you have care and concern for others, it's not because, oh, I'm a very caring person. Stop congratulating yourself. (laughs) It's the love of God in us. And so don't let our hearts condemn us. Know that God is operating in and through us and it's a wave of love and we're just going along for the ride. And we can be thankful that when when he uses us to love others and others thank us, we know that we're only participating in the love that God is already giving them. It's not us doing it, but he's gracious and allows us to be part of it. All right, let's worship.